Isn't it grand to be able to sing as we've just done tonight? As we have lifted our voices together and extolled walking in heavenly sunlight. And also sung about, of course, those praises as we appreciate the wonderful nature we can offer and extol the nature of God. It's so good to be able to be together tonight and we're thankful for the presence of each and every individual that's here. You may have already noticed the legacy of Barnabas will be our discussion tonight. Doesn't the word legacy kind of excite you? That word by its very nature has to do with that that lives on after a person. What might you and I be known for? If God shall let the world stand, 50 years from now, the mention of your name might conjure up what thoughts in somebody else's heart. What are you and I known for? Well, may I suggest to you that Barnabas has an amazing legacy. A legacy that reminds us of some of the greatest privileges that's ours as Christians. And these privileges are really some of the things we'll be studying tonight. I hope that as you have your Bible, you'll be turning to the book of Acts because we'll be looking at a number of passages in the book of Acts this evening. This introductory slide, though, will bring us to begin our discussion in the following way. So many characters in the Bible, and that's even true of the New Testament. We need not merely think only the Old Testament characters, and yet even as you consider, say, the book of Acts, a number of individuals by name are listed, and that should remind us instantly the fact that the Bible is a book of history. Talking about real people living in real places, real cities in various parts of the earth, and they responded to the gospel in ways that are recorded for you and me. You'll notice about the middle of that slide, it is true that there are a host of good examples in the Bible, characters that set before us, patterns that you and I could well follow in a very good way. Individuals like Moses and Paul and Jeremiah and others. But on the other hand, there are those whose examples are very bad, such as Jezebel, Diotrephes, Demas, and others. Tonight, let's think about Barnabas. What about his legacy? What's he known for? By the time we're finished tonight, each of us will be prepared to ask, would your name and mine fit in the same way Barnabas's does? Let's begin like this. In Acts chapter 4, verse 36 is our first lesson text of the evening, and this is the first mention in the book of Acts of the man named Barnabas. I've tried to highlight on this slide some of the features and the attributes of that passage. We won't read the entirety of that chapter, but let me just highlight, if I might, some of those features, and if you'd like to read them as we proceed through it, that's fine. But we are in the early days of the church of our Lord. It's true that the Old Testament, there had been the nation of Israel. There had been those of Hebrew extraction, and they, of course, had been given the Word of God in the sense that the law of Moses was given to them. And they were entrusted to keep it. For Romans 3 verse 2 tells us that unto them were committed the oracles of God. And yet, we notice that there was to be a new covenant coming into place. Many Old Testament passages foretold it. And finally the time had come. Jesus the Messiah had died. And He Himself asserted, I'll build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And you and I realize that not that many days after He was crucified, sure enough, Acts chapter 2 records for us the birth of this new organization, the Church of Jesus Christ. That church, in all of its power and its beauty and its prestige, 
is such that, of course, early on, there were clearly some rocky days. After all, these individuals who were interested in becoming Christians, they were persecuted in many ways on various sides. The Jews didn't accept them. They still wanted to cling to the law of Moses, and therefore they persecuted Christians. The Roman government persecuted Christians. Others, of course, also had their animosity toward it. The early days of the church often saw challenging difficulties. If I could invite you to read with me in Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse number 34, it says, Neither was there any among them that lacked. For as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet, and distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. Did you know with me? Brethren had needs. They were bereft of sufficient food. They were in need of certain things, perhaps including clothing and otherwise. Again, those needs were prompted by the fact that here they were leaving behind some previously known religion, and they embraced and welcomed Christianity. Quite often, previous family members, no doubt, would now have nothing to do with them. These people that were now Christians or these people who had adopted the matter of Christianity. You and I notice well in this passage that these brethren, though, these early Christians, they had a keen love one of another, a keen desire and interest to ensure that all's needs were met. Verse number 34 says, "...neither was there any among them that lacked." When it became known that an individual was in need, the brethren saw need to it or they saw fit to quickly address that in the following way. Verse 35, And laid them down at the apostles' feet. They sold possessions. They sold lands. They, in fact, sold those things that they had and took the funds, the monies, and gave it to the apostles. And it was then entrusted to them to see to it that it was directed to those in need. Aren't you impressed with the love, the brotherly love of those first century Christians? Doesn't it remind us that Jesus said, By this shall all men know that you're my disciples, if you have love one for another. John 13, verses 34 and 35. It was on this instance that you and I notice about the middle of that slide, a particular individual is named. Verse 36, And Joseph, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of consolation, a Levite, and of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. The indication is that there were several of the, of the disciples who did this. They sold possessions, they sold lands, but this gentleman's name is particularly held up for you and I to consider. Verse 36 says, Joseph. That's the way the King James reads it. The actual original Greek text, he was Joseph. Spelled just the same way that you and I encounter that Joseph back in the book of Genesis. Joseph was his name. But we quickly notice that a few additional pieces of information are given about him. First of all, it's noted that by the apostles, he was given a surname. Isn't it exciting to think about those occasions in the Bible when an individual is given a surname? 
that is to say, a designation that was more befitting of that for which he stood. A designation equipping that person in such a way that his work would be known. Here you'll notice that he was surnamed Barnabas. Now parenthetically, we are told what that word means. We are given indication what it stands for. Notice in verse 36, which is being interpreted the son of consolation. The son of consolation. On the slide, I would ask you to notice that exact phrase literally means the following. Son of exhortation. Son of encouragement. The thing for which Barnabas was primarily known. He was a man that encouraged other people. A man that exhorted them to good things. A man who motivated them and compelled them in a very tender and loving way to serve in more positive ways the Lord Jesus Christ. That's an amazing legacy, don't you think? A remarkable thing for which a man might be known. And yet, you'll notice, he was also a Levite. Therefore, he had a lineage taking him back to the very man named Levi in the Old Testament. And what's more, he lived on an island, the island of Cyprus. Now that island there in the Mediterranean Sea is one that we encounter at least occasionally in the New Testament. And yet his name apparently was known far and wide as one who exhorted others. Let's close that slide like this. If it was true that Barnabas was known for this, even the apostles knew him for this. And remember, he was from Cyprus and they're working in Jerusalem. It didn't matter his name and the reputation that preceded him had reached even to the apostles. The question at the bottom is for you and me tonight. I wonder in what way is my name known? What about you? Are you known like Barnabas was? Are you known as one who encourages others in ways that are good? Again, 20 years from now, when maybe times have brought very different circumstances in life, when your name or mine is mentioned, do others hearken back to a day when they can easily remember a time when you or I encouraged them, exhorted them, consoled them in the way much like Barnabas did. The statements at the bottom, the verses, in fact, challenge us in this way. In 1 Thessalonians 2, verse number 11, we notice as Paul addressed the church in Thessalonica, he in fact made mention to them how that he had exhorted them tenderly, just as a father would his loving children. Furthermore, in 1 Thessalonians 5, 11, all of us under the tutelage of the elders are admonished to be those who lift high the banner of exhortation. We here at Pippin would wish to be like this, wouldn't we? To encourage and exhort one another, to provoke one another to love and good works. So much so that in Hebrews 10 verses 25 and 26, one of the ways that we have the privilege of doing this is on the occasions of our assemblies. Barnabas was known as an encourager. What are you and I known for? Wouldn't it be sad to think I'm known as a complainer? I'm known as a whiner. I'm known as a lazy man. And we can continue that list on and on. And yet Barnabas was known as an encourager. I hope each of us can take to heart some of those ideas and use them 
to, uh, to in fact, motivate ourselves to also be more like Barnabas in that way. Might we all suggest, though, that this isn't the only occurrence of Barnabas in the book of Acts. What else was he known for? What else might add to his legacy? You'll notice with me in Acts chapter 9, we encounter him again. Would you please turn over to that chapter with me as we fill in a few details? By now, of course, we are some years later, and the church has grown a bit in its strength. But there is a very overwhelming and compelling event to occur in this chapter. The chapter opens, chapter 9 that is, with a discussion of a man named Saul. Saul was a persecutor of Christians. So much so that he actually had in his possession letters whereby, upon arriving in Damascus, he would be able to imprison them. He would be able, in fact, to attempt to force them to apostatize from that faith they had developed and that faith they had accepted. You might well notice, though, it was on that road to Damascus as he approached the city that a bright light shone about him. And this one who previously had been known for persecuting Christians spoke with the Lord whom he had doubted. He carried on conversation with the one whom he had not accepted. In consequence of that, you may remember in verse 6, it was he who finally said, What will you have me to do? He had been convinced. The one whom he had thought was only a fake, that he was not really the Messiah, and now he honestly understood that he was. Lord, what will you have me to do? He was told to go into the city. And there he'd be told him what he must do. You may remember that Ananias was commissioned to come and speak to this man. Now, the reputation of Saul was known far and wide. He was known for persecuted Christians, and it was known that he had in his possession letters whereby he could imprison them upon arriving in Damascus. And yet, you may remember that upon his discussion with Ananias, verse number 20, says, And straightway he preached Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. This one who previously had been a persecutor, now he preached the same faith he once had destroyed. The very words Paul himself would use in Galatians 1, verses 21 to 23. Isn't it amazing, though, now to ask this question? If you and I had been in the ancient city, how would we have reacted? You would have heard, no doubt, that Paul was coming, and you would have heard what he was coming to do to imprison Christians. And yet, here you are, a Christian in Damascus. When Paul asks if he can preach to the church, what would you say? Would his previous reputation, in fact, lead you to quickly not allow any such thing and try to hide from him? You'll notice that the brethren there were obviously concerned and very skeptical. Verse number 21 says, But all that heard him were amazed, and said, Is not this he that destroyed them which called on this name, on this name in Jerusalem, and came hither for that intent that he might bring them bound unto the chief priests? They knew very well why he had come. And the brethren again were very concerned and suspicious to say the least. I wonder who steps in to help things out. Would you jump down with me to verse number 27? By this time, let me begin with verse 26. And when Saul was come to Jerusalem, he essayed to join himself to the disciples, but they were all afraid of him 
and believed not that he was a disciple. Now, Paul, or rather Saul's time in Damascus, that soon came to an end. And he journeyed to Jerusalem. But when the brethren in Jerusalem learned that Saul had come, they really didn't want anything to do with him. They weren't at all convinced he was really a disciple of Jesus. Maybe they thought it was a trap. Maybe they thought it was merely a methodology or scheme whereby he could learn where they lived and how he could acclaim them. But you'll notice that verse closes by saying they were afraid of him. Verse number 27 brings us to Barnabas. But Barnabas took him, that is, took Saul, and brought him to the apostles and declared unto them how he had seen the Lord in the way and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. Does your heart thrill to think of what Barnabas did here? Here was a man and there was an impasse. Saul was a trying to join himself to those apostles. He wanted to contribute to the work in Jerusalem, but they wanted nothing to do with him. They didn't believe he really was a disciple. Into that circumstance steps Barnabas. He brings Saul to the apostles. He speaks on Saul's behalf, making mention of the fact this man preached boldly in Damascus. He saw Jesus on the road to Damascus. At this point, you might begin to appreciate what a tremendous effort that Barnabas exerted. At this point, verse number 28 begins to finish that story. And he was with them coming in and going out at Jerusalem. Question, did the apostles listen to what Barnabas said? Did they take to heart this intercession that Barnabas offered? They did. For verse 28 says, He, that's Saul, was with them coming in and going out in Jerusalem. The apostles accepted him. They appreciated the fact he really had been converted to Jesus and that he really was an ardent defender of the faith in boldness. Verse 29 says, And he spake boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Grecians, but they went about to slay him. His conviction, his determination... His dedication was such that they now knew he was not simply play-acting. He really had been converted to Christ, and they now were ready to kill him. As you keep all that in mind, the developments on this slide now bring the question to you and me. One more matter of legacy has been added to Barnabas. We first had studied he was one who was known for exhortation and encouragement. Look what he did here. He stepped in with the attempt to facilitate on behalf of good when there was an impasse perceived in the mind of others. I tried to state that as you'll see at the bottom. Saul, Barnabas knew, could well be a great defender of faith and a powerful worker for the Lord and for the kingdom of Christ. But yet the apostles were unsure of him at that moment. The brethren in that city were not at all convinced of him. And it was Barnabas who, in conviction, stepped in and knew the facts. And he convinced them of the goodness and the boldness and the capability of Saul. Now you and I know what a worker for the Lord Saul became. Missionary journeys on which he went. Planting of churches in so many varying cities. And yet that work began in many ways, in Jerusalem at least with the efforts 
of a man named Barnabas. We can't help but be impressed with Barnabas. This matter of his legacy challenges you and me to ask this of ourselves. How do you and I then speak on behalf of those who know and love the truth? Are we much too quick to gossip about them rather than lift high the nature and the banner of what they can do and that for which they stand? What about our attempt to besmirch the reputation of another when we may have no idea what the ultimate facts of the case may be? You'll notice Barnabas wasn't swayed by any of this. He knew what kind of life Saul had had, but he also knew what happened on the road to Damascus and that conviction motivated him to speak positively on behalf of Saul, even in the presence of these apostles. Some of these verses challenge you and I that way. In Matthew 7, verse number 12, Jesus said, in that passage often known to you and me as that very beautiful golden rule, and whatsoever ye would that men should do unto you, do you even so unto them? For this is the law and the prophets. Would you and I wish for someone to speak good things on our behalf? Surely we would, and we should then should wish to do that to others. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, we read about a lengthy list about how that it's a time for certain things, and there comes a time for other things. There's a time to speak. Furthermore, we might add one more thing. In Ephesians 3 verse 8, aren't we reminded in rather clear ways about the unsearchable riches of Christ and how that you and I too are blessed with the opportunity and the capability to speak on behalf of it? So far, we've studied two things about Barnabas and what a great legacy he has. Let's look at another one. He's mentioned again in this book. As we turn the slide and consider chapter 11, we encounter Barnabas again. This time in verses 22 and following, let's read beginning in verse number 22. Then tidings of these things came into the ears of the church which was in Jerusalem, and they sent forth Barnabas that he should go as far as Antioch, who when he came and had seen the grace of God was glad and exhorted them that with purpose of heart they would cleave unto the Lord. For he was a good man, and full of the Holy Ghost and of faith, and much people was added unto the Lord. Then departed Barnabas to Tarsus for to seek Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him into Antioch. And it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people, and the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. Now already... That touches our heart again as we reflect on what was said here about Barnabas. On this slide, again, some of the features of it are highlighted. Let me begin by asking you to note this. In Acts chapter 8, there was a tremendous persecution that began to be directed against the church. It happened after the stoning of Stephen. By the time we reach the chapter before which we are now, that persecution had scattered to the point where... It had even come to Antioch. Now the fact is, there was a measure of success though with the gospel in that place. That success leads to that next statement. The church in Jerusalem became aware of the issues in the city of Antioch. Who of all the brethren did they choose to send? 
they chose Barnabas. Doesn't that speak volumes about the kind of person he was, the reputation he had, and the certainty and the assurance they had of the kind of work he would do? We might even pause at this point and ask this. If this congregation was needing to send someone to support, to encourage, to aid in the development of a congregation somewhere nearby, could our elders depend on your name or mine? Could they have the utmost conviction in our soundness and rest assured that when he and or she were able to assist in that effort, that what would be carried out would be the truth with absolute certainty? That's a great question, isn't it? They sure felt confident in Barnabas. Let's add to that this observation. Verse 23 tells about his work once he arrived there. When he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and exhorted them all. There's that word exhort again. Barnabas was the son of exhortation. That's what he was known for and he's still doing it in his life. One last thing. That with purpose of heart, they would cleave unto the Lord. May I suggest we all should be more like Barnabas. Not only did he cleave to the Lord, he encouraged them to do it. And a great work developed in Antioch because of it. Although we won't see it until chapter 13, may I ask this. What congregation was the sponsoring congregation for all three of Paul's missionary journeys? It was the church at Antioch. The very church that Barnabas had assisted and aided in its development. You can see what kind of groundwork he had laid. That church was a mission-driven church. It was a congregation known for preaching the gospel worldwide. And no doubt Barnabas had a lot to do with that. In fact, as you and I look on to this slide, his character is noted very powerfully in verse 24. He was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit. Are you and I known that way? A good man or a good woman, directed by the things of the Spirit, is the Word of God. Does it come to mind when someone mentions your name or mine? He or she sure knows what that Bible teaches. He or she isn't interested in their opinion, but they want to rest on nothing more or less than the declaration of the Word of God. I hope you and I are known for that. That'd be a compliment, a very, very high compliment. Barnabas was known for it. And so these personal questions come your way or mine. Again, if this church were in need of assistance or help, could they call on you or me? If a nearby congregation were in need of assistance or help, could they call on you or me? The church in Jerusalem sure knew who to call. Maybe one last thing on that slide would be this. In 2 Timothy 2.25, there's an admonition, in fact, given in light of answering the call of the gospel, answering the call of the need of the Scriptures. Paul asserted that those of his day had been so ready, and may I suggest you and I should ever be ready, but sanctify the Lord Jesus in your heart and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you, a reason of the hope that's within you with meekness and fear. 1 Peter 3.15 as you and I come near the close of that slide, one last thing about this passage. Did you notice that after coming to Antioch, 
Barnabas immediately concluded that if Saul were here, the very one we've just studied about earlier in chapter 9, if he were here, he would fit perfectly. He could be a tremendous resource and, in fact, a moving element in this congregation. And so it is, in verse 25, Barnabas departed to Tarsus and brought Saul back. He had a great idea. He had a vision. Barnabas was a man of vision. Are you and I people of vision? Do we proceed to appreciate that here is a circumstance, and if this were to happen, if that individual, if these traits were present, this work could expand, and it could explode by leaps and bounds. We need elders with vision. All of us need to be visionaries as well. Because where there's no vision, the people will languish, Proverbs 29 verse 15 tells us. Tonight, as you and I contemplate ourselves, can't we see a need to be like Barnabas? Vision-oriented with respect to the gospel? They didn't know all that this book says about Barnabas. What else fills in his legacy? This next slide will make mention of a couple of other passages. And then the lesson will be yours. First of all, back in chapter number 9, you'll notice verse 27. Acts chapter 9, verse 27. Mention was made on that occasion that Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, that was Saul, of course, and declared unto him how that he had seen the Lord in the way, and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus. I mention that because it initiates a familiarity. Barnabas with that congregation. Notice later what it encourages us to note. Barnabas was well known as a person who brought relief. When there was a need, Barnabas seemingly with vision could find a way to help take care of it, to resolve it. He had done that back in chapter 9. He did it again in chapter 11. Later, there will be missionary journeys where one more time that aspect of his life will rise to the top. Are you and I known to bring relief? Do we have a kind and comforting word for that person in grief? Do we have those words of encouragement for someone who's cast down and perhaps afflicted? Do we have that necessary word of exhortation when someone is on the precipice of apostasy? Barnabas was known to bring relief, to bring good things. I hope you and I would be known for that too. An individual who is trustworthy and accountable, a person who's responsible and who will tell you the thing that, that they know to be right. All of that leads me to the last one. In chapters 13 to 15, Barnabas is mentioned many times. Have you ever thought about what context it was? The missionary journeys are about to begin. Saul had come to Antioch, and that congregation made a determination. Verses 1 and following of chapter 13 read it like this. Now there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers. And the first one listed was a man named Barnabas. Barnabas and Simeon, that was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manaean, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. 
As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I've called them. And when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. Did you notice Barnabas was a teacher? He wasn't satisfied with merely his knowledge of the truth. He was eager and anxious to impart it to others. Are you and I known as teachers? Maybe not always in public venues as the services, but even in personal one-on-one ways, do we teach the gospel of Christ? May we keep in mind that we here at this congregation have already made arrangements. This fall in the month of November, we're going to have a personal evangelism seminar. We can already begin to look forward to that. We're going to have Rob Whitaker with us, giving us insight and tips and wisdom on how we can have personal Bible studies with people, to help them to know what the gospel teaches and to do so in a way that will have results and to do so in a way that will bring glory to God. Our elders have seen to it that we've had that scheduled. We're going to begin to advertise that much more notably in the coming months. Keep that on your calendar the fourth day of November later this year. You'll notice that's following in the steps of the legacy of Barnabas, teaching the gospel, desirous of helping other souls realize that what we've already enjoyed. Did you notice one other thing, though? The Holy Spirit said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, and Barnabas' name is listed first. As the next verses detail, the work the Holy Spirit had in mind, were mission efforts far distant from Antioch. And so they set sail and ultimately arrive at various places over in Asia Minor and they teach the gospel of Christ. They establish congregations. They carry out mission efforts. Barnabas was a key element in it. As you keep all that in mind, there's one more thing that is so wonderful And we'd be remiss not to mention about Barnabas. If you turn over to chapter 15, this observation is made. I mention it because it's so easy for you and I maybe to appreciate an occurrence like this one. Beginning in verse 36 of Acts chapter 15, it says, And some days after, Paul said unto Barnabas, Let us go again and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they do. Now, if I might interject a comment, the first missionary journey was over by this point. It would seem that perhaps about a year and a half or two years have passed. And Paul has the idea, Barnabas, let's go back and revisit those congregations and see if they're continuing earnestly in the faith. Sounds like a wonderful idea. Verse 37 says, Barnabas determined to take with him John, whose surname was Mark. But Paul thought not good to take him with them, who departed from them from Pamphylia and went not with them to the work. And the contention was so sharp between them that they departed asunder one from the other. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed into Cyprus. And Paul chose Silas and departed, being recommended by the brethren and the grace of God. A contention developed between Barnabas and Paul. That contention became heated and sharp. Barnabas wanted to take John Mark back with them on this second journey, but Paul did not want to take him. Maybe at this point you and I could imagine 
Was the argument so great that the work never got done? The answer is no. You noticed what happened. Barnabas, it says in verse 39, took John Mark, and they went to Cyprus and preached the gospel. In essence, there were two missionary journeys, not just one. We're familiar with Silas and Paul, who again went back to Asia Minor and did much good for that part of the world. But may we never forget Barnabas. He also went on a journey, and he took John Mark with him. He was so convicted of the gospel that it was not an option to not go. He went. It's just he took John Mark, and oh, what great good, no doubt, was accomplished. May I ask us a question? When there are setbacks... When there is resistance, when there is opposition to a good work of the Lord, do we throw up our hands and quit? Or like Barnabas, do we find a way to bring about something good despite the opposition? The Bible is filled with those who did that. Ezra, Nehemiah, Moses, so many others. And we might add Barnabas to that list. What a legacy the man has. The book of Acts has detailed several things, and tonight we've discussed an amazing legacy of Barnabas. Let's close our lesson and do so by challenging all of us. Is your legacy in mind at least in the same ballpark, in the same discussion with Barnabas? He facilitated good. He was known as an encourager. He, in fact, was so committed to the gospel that he had a vision toward ways to bring about the goodness of it. He was known for relief. And as we've studied most recently, even in the face of opposition and difficulty, he still was committed to bringing about exhortation and encouragement in others. Does all of that describe you and me? Honestly, does it? I hope it does. I trust it does and that we're all working toward the reality of making it so if it doesn't. Tonight, what's your legacy and what's mine? A lesson like this one paints a picture of challenge for all of us. May we strive to be like Barnabas. Tonight, if you aren't like him, maybe you've never even begun to be like him. You need to become a Christian tonight. Jesus died for you and He established the church and He wants you to be a part of it. May I suggest that to do it requires you believe in Jesus with all of your heart, repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized. If we could help you in doing that tonight, these baptismal waters are ready. It can be accomplished in a matter of minutes. If you have become a Christian though, but maybe exhortation is not associated with you, Maybe you're known for a lot of other things that aren't so good. You can change beginning tonight. You can reinvest in that which would be more like Barnabas so that your legacy can be much more like his. If we could help you to do that by praying to God on your behalf, if we can in fact make mention of your repentance and confession, oh, what a new start it'd be. A brand new day in your life can dawn. If we could help you tonight in that way, we'd be in a position we'd love to do it, we'd invite you to come while together we stand and while we sing.